This is The Guardian. Dieser Podcast basiert auf einem respektvollen Umgang miteinander. Leider geht es im Netz oft ganz anders zu. Bis zu 5% der Menschen verbreiten online Hass. Lasst uns dagegen gemeinsam lauter sein. Wenn Liebe laut ist, hat Hass keine Chance. Werde Teil der Initiative gegen Hass im Netz der Deutschen Telekom und ihren Partnern. Auf telekom.com slash gegen Hass im Netz. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have been going head-to-head in a series of live TV debates this week. And it's been pretty feisty. Please let Liz Truss answer. Please let her answer. When inflation gets out of control, interest rates go up. Rishi Sunak, please let Liz Truss answer. With more debates and interviews expected this week, we'll look at whether anyone really needs this much exposure to the candidates. And last time rail workers went on strike, RMT boss Mick Lynch, well, he went a bit viral with his no-nonsense interviews. And he's back. He's also got something to say about frontrunner Liz Truss. Well, I think she's a right-wing fundamentalist, actually. And I think it's, we're going to have one of the most extreme uh, leaders if she succeeds. Probably not a surprise that he's no fan of a Tory cabinet minister, but does anyone have a way to get passengers moving again? I'm Raphael Baer, sitting in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are the Observer columnist Sonia Soda and Will Tanner, director of the Think Tank Onward and a former advisor to Theresa May when she was Home Secretary. Hello, both. Hi. Hi, Raf. Now, before we get down to politics this week, I want to get your thoughts on something, a vital continental organisation, a strategic institution with which the UK has had a slightly testy relationship sometimes. I'm talking, of course, about Eurovision. Uh, it's been announced that uh, the UK will host on behalf of Ukraine, whose magnificent Kalish Orchestra won this year, and for the obvious and very sad reasons, they are unable to host it. Now, quite naturally, everyone agrees that the right city to put Eurovision in is Brighton, which is where I live, because in 1974, Brighton hosted it, and that was the year that Waterloo won, which is obviously the best Eurovision song uh, in history. But I wonder if you guys have any runner-up ideas as to where Eurovision should be hosted in the UK. I'm going to go, in, I'm in the anywhere but London crowd, but probably not Brighton too. Sorry, Raf. Um, <laughs> Thank you for here. Thank you for joining us, Sonia. Goodbye. Um, Will. Okay, go on, Sonia. I, I, I actually think, um, I mean, it's, it's great that we're doing it. It's obviously, I think it was Sam Ryder who said it's Ukraine's party. We're just hosting it in our house. Maybe we should give Ukrainians a say over, over where, where hosts it. But I think um, London gets a lot of stuff. And we're meant to be into levelling up at the moment. So I sort of think London or London outposts like Brighton probably aren't the place to hold it. So I agree with Sonia, I'm afraid, Raf. Um, I would also make a plug for a town rather than a city. Uh, our great city. Like Brighton. Well, but not a town, a very affluent town on the, on the south coast of England, but potentially a town that's had... Uh, its fortunes kind of run down over recent decades. So uh, obviously the treasury is in Darlington. So uh, why not go to Doncaster or somewhere like that? I thought you were going to say Blackpool. Blackpool's also good. I have nothing against Blackpool. Blackpool, I'm sure, would host a fantastic party on behalf of the Ukrainians. All right. Okay. I think we'll, we'll, we'll send in our submissions and they won't listen to us. Now, we are actually going to talk about some politics too. Uh, we're going to start by looking at that leadership debate, which has 
many iterations and I'm sure we've all watched all of it uh, ad nauseam and the blue on blue action and how that works out for the Conservatives. We'll also be talking about rail strikes and the conundrum they pose for the Labour Party and whether all roads lead back to nationalisation. But before we get on to that, I just want to send uh, our best wishes, best wishes from everyone here at The Guardian to Kate McCann, the host of Tuesday night's debate on Talk TV. She was taken ill on set uh, and we hope that she is making a speedy recovery and feeling much better. She's a great journalist and also a fine human being. Now, Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have gone head to head in, well, so far two live broadcasts. Uh, this week to demonstrate to the public or more precisely to the 160,000 odd conservative members who actually get a vote in this election that they are the person for the job. Now, we are going to talk about the substance of the debate. Uh, but first, I think we should probably have a word about Rishi Sunak's in your face debating technique. Let's just hear an example of that. Seven percent. That's I, the number that he gave. I, I, do you know what that would do for people's mortgages? Do you accept I, that? I, I absolutely. This is the problem with your plan. It's going to push people into. into look, please let Liz Truss answer. Please let her answer. When uh, inflation gets out of control, Sunak, please, interest rates go up. Rishi that's Sunak, what please let Liz Truss answer. Now, whatever you think of Liz Truss, I think there's going to have been some sympathy out there. Uh, for her experiencing what I think is probably familiar to a lot of women in a lot of workplaces and elsewhere. I believe the technical word for what Rishi Sunak was doing there was mansplaining. Um, Sonia, is that what we just heard? I think he came across as quite aggressive, actually. So you've got to separate the substance of the points that he's making. And I think fair enough, he's got a different view on the economy. Fine for him to say it. Um, but there's also the style with which he does it. And for me, it was too aggressive. He just kept interrupting. And I think he's got to be careful. Uh, and I think actually on Tuesday night, in the time that we had, he did take a sort of um, less interrupty, aggressive approach. And I think there's a good that's a good thing because I think it does play into this image problem that he's got, of which there are elements of truth, which is that he's an entitled public schoolboy, much like Boris Johnson, who's used to um, feeling very braggadocio about his own views and being overconfident. Uh, so, Will, let's talk about uh, Liz Truss then. In the first debates when there were more candidates, I think it's fair to say she got some pretty shocking reviews. Uh, people said she was wooden. Uh, she didn't come across well at all. Uh, do you think she's warmed up? Did, did, did she come across better, you think, this week? I think there's been an absolute transformation in Liz Truss's debating style over the course of the last few weeks. If you remember that that first uh, debate, as you say, she was she was wooden. Uh, she uh, came bottom in in several of the kind of post debate reaction polls, uh, and she is a cabinet minister who's famous for giving incredibly awkward, cringeworthy speeches on everything from cheese to pork markets at Conservative Party conference. But suddenly, she has developed this quite formidable uh, style that is. Uh, filled with passion, uh, and it's very clear she believes what she says, and I think authenticity is a big part of its appeal. But she's also incredibly calm and considered in her responses, and it has contrasted, as Sonia says, with uh, Rishi Sunak's style. And I have some sympathy for Rishi. He needs to uh, challenge Liz Truss on her economics. He needs to uh, pin her down on some of the uh, details that she's yet to give about the implications of her plans for inflation and interest rates. But the effect of his style compared to hers is to make her seem almost prime ministerial um, and for him to 
come across as frustrated, dejected, and uh, uh, and like he's not getting in the points that he wants to get. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I think it seems to me that tactically what he was trying to do was just throw her off her guard. It was kind of the high press, wasn't it? Uh, and to hope that she would be disoriented and then make some gaffe or that that would sort of exacerbate her flaws. And actually, he probably wasn't ready for her to have, to have actually sort of upped her game on that. But there is this sense, isn't there, that all this kind of blue on blue stuff, it, you know, the, the attacking, the tone of it, it's just toxic for the Conservative Party more widely. I'm actually a bit sceptical about that. I, I think the public, they sort of get that it's a competition and these people are going to disagree. And that afterwards, they might then sort of be friends again and form a government. Again, Will, is, what's your sense of, of the sort of the lasting damage that them taking chunks out of each other in this way might do for the Tories? So I, I agree. I don't think there is likely to be hugely lasting damage amongst the public. Uh, I think the public already think that political parties are like cats in a sack and uh, fighting with each other all the time. Uh, and politics is a blood sport. It, I remember back to the 2016 uh, leadership election that I was working on. That was the leadership election in which Michael Gove stabbed Boris Johnson in the back and Andrea Leadsom had to resign because she did a newspaper interview in which she accused Theresa May of not understanding things because she wasn't a mother. That was an incredibly kind of acerbic and contested leadership election. And to be honest, I think all leadership elections have a degree of uh, aggression to them. Uh, but I think there will be potential damage to the internal workings of the Conservative Party. What's really interesting is the extent to which MPs are uh, giving background briefings to newspapers with incredibly uh, detailed and uh, and aggressive quotes against their opponents. And that type of bad blood tells take a while to settle within a Conservative Party. I suppose that I suppose the difference is, though, that it that just feeds a general sense of all politicians. They're all awful and contemptible. And I don't I, but I don't know necessarily whether Labour actually benefit from that. People just presume that it would be the same. And and something that I'm kind of fascinated by, you know, you saw you've seen it in the debate uh, and more generally in this contest, the incredible awkwardness everyone seems to feel about whether they are repudiating Johnson, the character, whether they're repudiating Johnson, the project. Maybe in the in Liz Truss's case, they're not repudiating anything at all. She didn't seem to find a bad word to say about him. And this issue of, well, there's two things really, aren't there? There's a sort of, you know, there's there's that question about how, you know, how dangerous is it when you're trying to appeal to Tory voters uh, and uh, sort of Tory members specifically to sort of run a mile from Boris Johnson, some of whom, you know, some people still think he's great. Uh, and also whether actually anyone who isn't Boris Johnson could still hold together the, that that extraordinary voter coalition that came together in 2019. But but first, let's hear this, the, the, the bizarre bit of that um, BBC debate where the candidates were asked to give Johnson uh, marks out of 10. Seven. Seven. Rishi Sunak? Uh, you know what? I, my views are clear. When he was great, he was great, and it got to a point where we need to move forward. And what does, what does that mean? Five out, five out of ten? Well, actually, actually, in delivering a solution to Brexit and winning an election, that's a ten out of ten, right? You've got to give the guy credit for that. No-one else could probably have done that. Right? Now, he got a rare burst of applause there, didn't he, when he said that ten out of ten? So my view on it has always been actually sort of over the last six months that nobody can repeat the trick that Boris Johnson did, uh, that 2019 Boris Johnson did. 2019 Boris Johnson can't do it, but neither can any of his successors. I think Sunak's got issues. I think Truss has got issues. I think there were a set of quite unique circumstances around that 2019 election with a very effective slogan around getting Brexit done at a point when Brexit was incredibly salient that helped knit together that 
that coalition of voters. And I think the circumstances of the next election are going to feel so different and it's going to be mostly focused on the economy that that is going to be a hard coalition for either of uh, Truss or Sunak uh, to hold together. That doesn't mean that Labour's necessarily going to win. I just think there are without a doubt going to be significant conservative losses. I don't necessarily agree with that analysis. I think the um, the conservative coalition in 2019 was unique, not because of Boris Johnson. It was unique because of the policy and political posture that it uh, put across to the electorate. It was a conservative party that was not just trying to get Brexit done, but it was also trying to deliver a different type of economic model that would bring growth and opportunity to different parts of the UK than the Conservative Party is done for a very long time, if ever. Uh, and it was also a Conservative Party that was exploiting the weaknesses of uh, a Labour Party that hadn't delivered either through the through councils or through MPs in those places over many, many years and, and decades. So I actually think uh, that lots of the fundamentals for the 2019 coalition still exist. Uh, I think there is a continued desire from those voters to see levelling up delivered uh, and uh, investment in the NHS, in schools, in uh, in public services. Uh, I, a desire to see Brexit maintained. Uh, that, that desire has not gone away in the last couple of years, despite some of the problems uh, with the Northern Ireland Protocol, etc. Um, uh, no, I, I agree with you on that. But at the same time, Brexit is much lower in terms of its political salience. People consider it to be done. You know, the government has claimed it is done. Uh, what happens to it is not a live issue in the way that it was in 2019. So I would agree that it's lower in salience. It doesn't mean that's not going to be a big dividing line at the next election, especially who is the le- given who is the leader of the Labour Party. And it does depend also on when this election is held, whether or not cost of living in the economy is the main issue or, or not. Uh, this election could be held as late as J- January 2025, when some of the economic forecasts are actually starting to improve. So I, I, I think we're making a series of assumptions about the 2019 election that we actually uh, we actually don't know about yet. I would also say that I don't think either of the candidates are trying to prevent, present a, str- a fresh start. They are both offering some form of continuity. It's just a different type of continuity. And they're both trying to deliver on, I think, the 2019 promise. Right. That, 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 but that's very interesting, isn't it? Because you say they're both trying to do some continuity. But let's just remember for a moment why Boris Johnson isn't the prime minister. I mean, it's because he literally is, is a stranger to the truth. Uh, he was the first sitting prime minister you know, to, 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 to get a police sanction for breaking the law in office. I mean, you don't need to go through it all. It was about his essentially sort of morally degenerate character. So, Will, I, I just want to pre- press you on this. Like, isn't it a problem? But I think it's and, and, and Liz's trust is clearly pitching to the the Johnson loyalists more at this moment, this sort of sense that somehow Rishi Sunak was the assassin, he wielded the knife, you can't trust him. Surely there's going to be people, going to be people out in the country who are thinking, hang on a second, like we wanted rid of that guy, he was appalling, now you're telling us he's absolutely great and it's all fine and that was just a bit of a sudden rush of blood to the head. That is politically problematic, isn't it? Well, so, so two things I would say, Raph. So the first is, uh, it is possible to believe that Boris Johnson had to go because of all of the integrity issues surrounding him personally and, and all of the scandals of his own making um, and think that the project he started needs to be delivered. And I think that's the uh, position that Rishi Sunak finds himself in. I think it's also possible to feel like uh, Boris Johnson probably on balance had to go, but it's a great shame and he is a massive electoral asset. And we need to continue to deliver on the projects that he found to happen. And I think that's where Liz, Liz Truss is. And I think the membership, the, the people they are pitching to, are actually probably broadly split on that. Uh, there will be people who think 
Boris should still be leader of the Conservative Party. There will also be th- people who think Boris Johnson uh, shouldn't be. Uh, and the question, which both of them are asking, I'm not sure we have an answer, is which contingent is bigger? Uh, and that's, that's I think, one of the key questions okay, in this so, but, so, so, Will, I'm, I'm, and Sonia, I'm going to come back to you in a second, but Will, just very quickly, I mean, you run focus groups, right? So you are aware of where the public are on this particular issue. And, you know, those by-election results. I mean, Johnson was toxic. How how much of that toxin is going to contaminate uh, Liz Truss and or Rishi Sunak? You're right. We run focus groups and we get markedly different results depending on where we uh, run them. So uh, we did focus groups in uh, Oldham, uh, in uh, the height of the Partygate scandal, uh, uh, a moment where Parliament was in complete uproar about Partygate. And we had uh, members of focus groups tell us that it was all uh, a bit of a joke. The media was running uh, running it too long. Uh, the story had been going on for too long and actually we just need to get over it and start focusing on the big issues like Ukraine. We also have held focus groups in places like Warsaw where people take it incredibly seriously and think it's, it is an integrity issue that demands a resignation. So um, you get different types of responses in different places. Uh, I think what's interesting is there is a significant contingent of people who think Boris Johnson should not have had to resign. Um, and I think there was a risk for the Conservative Party that that kind of betrayal myth uh, perpetuates and actually overshadows whoever becomes the next leader, that people think, if only it was Boris, despite uh, despite the new leadership. Do you mean um, the members or, or the pub- wider public, though, Will? Uh, well, to be honest, a bit of both, but more the membership rather than um, voters, probably. Yeah. I think we have to be careful to distinguish between the two. Moving away from the personalities of it, the actual issue that has defined the debate so far, and that is a genuine dividing line and actually uh, an issue of some substance, is the tax position, uh, which I think you have, one of you has alluded to before. Uh, let's let's hear as best as possible the two candidates expressing the differences between them on this particular subject. Let's I, I, I think you to be honest with people about the trade-offs involved. I, I because like your to... proposals would mean that we get the short-term sugar rush of unfunded borrowed tax cuts, that that would be followed by the crash of the higher highest... prices and higher mortgage rates. And that is Rishi, not something that I want to cause for anyone you've the highest here. tax rate for 70 years. How on earth can you claim that that's going to drive economic growth? And where have the growth policies been for the past two and a half years to drive investment into our towns and cities you, across you know this country? You know what, Let, what I would do is I would realise the post-Brexit opportunities. I would do things like change solvency to a MIFID and I get on with it. Now, th- there is an interesting sort of non-partisan way of framing this this debate, isn't there? I think it which is essentially on the one hand, you know, you need fiscal stimulus of some kind to get growth going. That's the only way you're going to pick the economy up. But also, you know, there is the danger that you, if you cut taxes, you get a sugar rush, you get inflation. That's a disaster if it forces the Bank of England to intervene and raise interest rates. So that, that seems to be the core dividing line here. But now suddenly Rishi Sunak is saying, actually, he would cut VAT, possibly. Uh, does that mean he has sort of seen the light economically? Does it mean he's sort of seen the light, seen the writing on the wall politically and he's had to change? Uh, Will, what, what's your sense, both in terms of who's actually right on that fundamental macro question and also what on earth is Sunak now doing changing his position? So I think there is more fiscal headroom that Rishi Sunak has alluded to so far. Uh, but the announcement of a VAT cut uh, on Wednesday, I think, is a recognition by Rishi Sunak that he does need to give 
some targeted tax cuts in order to give people back a bit of money uh, in their pocket. Um, I'm actually a great enthusiast for the VAT cut on energy because it is both uh, better distributed uh, in terms of targeted at, at the poorest households, but also it's a Brexit dividend. It demonstrates one of the thing, one of the reasons why we we can kind of actually uh, unleash the economy after after Brexit and actually use some of those freedoms that we've just taken back. And it's politically very popular. So I think on balance, it's a good VAT, a good tax cut. Um, but uh, but it does, to some degree, undermine the argument that he's making. Be making already. I actually think there's a lot less um, clear water between their economic positions and is being portrayed. Obviously, there is some, and they are different stances, but neither of them are actually very consistent with the centre-left position on economic stimulus, and I think are consistent with a position that would be in favour of levelling up. Which is why I think Will was actually wrong to say that these are two candidates who are continuity Johnson in terms of wanting to level up. Neither of their macro economic positions allows them to level up. And um, for me, if you're really interested in levelling up, whether it's between people who have less and people who have more, or between poorer, less affluent regions, more affected by Brexit and by London and the South East, you would um, seek to do the fiscal um, stimulus, not through tax cuts, but by increasing rates, for example, of universal credit, which have been cut a lot over the last decade, sustained cuts that have seen low income, uh, low paid parents uh, with children in a much worse position than they were in 2010. So you would do that and you would also um, have a programme of investment uh, in areas that, that really need it the most. Just very, very quickly, Will, I want you to just come back on that because actually the, the one of the other problems with the Sunak position is surely what he's saying is if you can't borrow to cover the shortfall or also rather the core of his position is those that the, the national insurance rise was done to fund the NHS and so if you're if you're not doing that right and you're not borrowing, you've got a fiscal hole in terms of actually how you're how you're paying for the health service. That's something that to me hasn't yet been teased out in the debate between them. Well, I think so. I think Liz Truss has said that she wouldn't go ahead with the national insurance rights, but she would fund the NHS to the same degree through borrowing. Uh, so, uh, so the, the NHS is still getting the same amount of money. It's just uh, funded through different means, uh, and you can have a debate about the fiscal sense of, of each of those methods. But on levelling up, I, I just fundamentally disagree with Sonia. So already the government has committed a huge amount of money to this agenda. They spent twenty two billion pounds. I disagree. Spent twenty two billion pounds on our on R and D over the course of this fiscal forecast. We've had uh, much greater investment in capital infrastructure over the next few years in the existing. Uh, underlying uh, kind of fiscal forecast that the Treasury has put out uh, than uh, in previous governments uh, over the last uh, few years. There is there is already quite a lot of money going into the economy. And also, if levelling up is just public expenditure, then it will not succeed. We need to do much, much more to leverage in private investment into the parts of the country that haven't had private investment. Yeah, I, long, I agree with you. Time. It's about leveraging, but leveraging does require a degree of um, public investment. And I disagree with you. I think the 22 billion is actually a drop in the ocean when you look at what's needed. When you look at the vast different in spending per head on public infrastructure between on things like transport between the north and London and the southeast. There are really, really big differentials there. It's, it is extraordinary because it does feel like this is an argument that actually British politics has been having on and off. Actually, there was the argument that British politics was having basically between 2010 uh, and 2016. And then we got massively sidetracked by Brexit. And now we're back to having too far, too fast and, and, and fiscal rules. And uh, how do you actually... Um, 
to grow the economy and also deliver equality. So I'm glad that actually classic left-right economics is back with a vengeance in 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 British politics. Um, and that will come up more in this podcast in the future, no doubt. But in the meantime, so we'll pause here for a minute. And after that, we will be talking about rail strikes and public ownership and nationalisation. So yes, that left-right divide, it's coming back really, really soon. See, I told you we'd be back soon. Here we are already. It's now, what, Wednesday afternoon and we're all at home because the trains are on strike. That's not a very popular outcome for a lot of people. A lot of commuters It's particularly unpopular with both of the candidates who want to lead the Conservative Party. Uh, here's what they had to say about it in Monday's BBC debate. Two more strikes coming this week, two more train strikes. Will you ban strikes on essential public services like the railways? Yes, yes. it's a manifesto commitment yeah. and we need to deliver it. Banning strikes. It, it, it all feels a little bit like part of the ongoing sort of Thatcher Tribute Act, Iron Lady cosplay thing that's going on here. It's also a bit of a problem for Labour, isn't it? Now, Labour are the party of the workers or they're nothing. That's certainly the history. Uh, but also Keir Starmer, he wants to form a government. He wants Labour to be a government in waiting and standing on picket lines, waving placards. Well, it isn't a very ministerial thing to do. So Starmer told his front bench team not to do it. Sam Tarry, a shadow transport minister, did it anyway, and he's been sacked. Frankly, it's all a bit of a mess. Here's Mick Lynch from the RMT speaking on the Today programme. This was on Wednesday. Well, the Labour Party's got itself in a pickle, haven't they? They don't, they don't seem to know which direction they're facing in. And, and Keir Starmer is backing away from his commitments on public ownership and all sorts of stuff. Most of the MPs in the Labour Party want to support us instinctively and naturally because they are from the trade union movement, every, every one of them. Keir Starmer needs to get in tune with where working class people is because they're being ripped off in this society at the minute. I have a certain amount of sympathy with, with Keir Starmer's position on this. And well, he's actually said he had to clarify his position. He said he'd be pragmatic about public ownership. And that's because actually chunks of the railways are already in state hands. Uh, and even the, the Conservatives have accepted that. Uh, but, you know, a much wider programme of nationalisation was in the party's manifesto under Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Keir Starmer ran for the leadership, promising essentially continuity with that manifesto. Then Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeve suggested that uh, national nationalisation, public ownership is not on the agenda. So, Sonia, help us out here. Is this a sensible pragmatism? Is it a principle? Is it uh, tactically astute? Or is it just a big hot mess? I think it is a bit messy and it wasn't ideal for Rachel Reeves to go out and sort of say what she did about rail and then sort of appear to correct herself uh, a little bit later on. But I do think that overall the position is pragmatic. Um, lots of people on the left of the Labour Party point to the fact that nationalisation is a very popular policy, not just in rail, but across lots of other areas. Uh, but there is a difference between a policy being popular and abstract and then the fact that the Labour Party is swinging behind it. Labour have to be really sort of careful not to be perceived by voters as being this hugely status party, nationalising things for the sake of things. Um, so I personally think that, that Starmer had to take the party to a more moderate position on nationalisation. But I, I do think it is a bit of a problem for him that he didn't run 
on that honestly at the time um, because I think obviously he thought that he needed to fudge it in order to win from the membership. Maybe that's right, but it doesn't set you up that well, to be honest. Now, there was a me of a few years ago that agreed with you on this, but now I, I sense it's possible that actually the public have moved in quite a different place and actually Labour could just get away with perhaps being more radical on this uh, than Jeremy Corbyn could get away with, actually, for all sorts of reasons that we know. Uh, and Will, I'd be interested, going back to those that Sunak trust clip, I mean, again, it feels like they might be stuck in a bit of a time warp. It's not the miners' strike. You know, there's, it's not, Mick Lynch is not Arthur Scargill. Are, are they just getting this tonally wrong as well as politically wrong? I think the risk uh, in this debate is to treat it like an ideological uh, battle line from the 1980s. Um, I think realistically, uh, the public are actually relatively pragmatic. A huge number of the public are now working from home much more routinely than they were before as well. So actually the, the disruption of rail strikes is, is uh, to some degree lower than it was three or four years ago. Um, but I also think the way in which Mick Lynch has played this, it has been very instructive. It's He's largely avoided ideological narratives. He's mostly focused on practical steps in order to support workers. Uh, and he's tried to be incredibly common sense and direct in his language and been very effective for it. Um, there's a brilliant uh, kind of interview that Tony Blair gave about nationalisation, which I think exposes the Labour Party's difficulty with this a few years ago, where he talked about uh, kind of studying polls during the 1980s and showing uh, that showed that nationalisation and public ownership was hugely popular with the public and yet the Labour Party kept losing and then realised that if you actually have serious conversations with the public about public ownership they might like it in principle but as soon as you have a, a detailed conversation about what that means in practice the expense the complication they suddenly become much less supportive of it and want you to just get on with running the economy okay. I think the bigger problem for Starmer actually is not so much these kind of sort of tactical traps that, that he can fall into, encouraged by, I suppose, people on the left of his party, but the fact that actually, you know, no one really knows what the bigger picture is, um, what do you stand for? That, for me, is really the key issue, because I think if he can get that right, then he has leeway on stuff like nationalisation. And, you know, for example, on water, it's really dreadful how much profit has been made by companies backed by private equity out of ordinary people. So I think... He he buys himself leeway by being more visionary and bold, but he just doesn't have that. And that, for me, is the bigger problem for Labour at the moment. I think I would agree with you on that. My sense is that, I mean, if you think that essentially the water companies are guilty of literally pouring raw effluent into our rivers and water supplies, there ought to be a, a tone that Keir Starmer can adopt, sort of soaring over the top of the ideological thing on this. Like on the railways, you know, he ought to be able to say, look... It's not a battle between commuters and railway workers. Everyone's struggling. Everyone's feeling the same pain here. And actually, we want to bring people together to because everyone wants good railways. That requires him to kind of put his foot on the rhetorical clutch and find the gear that, mm. that, that can sort of break through that and say, no, let's have this conversation on my terms rather than on terms that are being dictated by Rishi Sunak. I think that's absolutely right. And the reason why he's not able to do that, and I think this is he's got something in common with Ed Miliband, is that um, I think they are both politicians who are quite scared of 
getting things wrong and falling on the wrong, wrong side of the public because they don't have the instinct that a politician like Tony Blair does around how the public thinks about this, which means they don't have the confidence to try and reframe the debate on their own terms. And, and that, I think, is really problematic for Starmer and means it's going to be very difficult for him to get on the front foot on that. OK, now that that's actually leads me to something that I, I had been meaning to say earlier. And Will, I want to ask you about this first. Is it the case, do you think, and again, thinking about public opinion more widely, that there are just sort of home and away fixtures in politics then? So basically, NHS, that's just a home fixture for Labour. Anything the Tories say on the NHS, they're going against a, a, a sort of a background noise of suspicion and mistrust. For, for Labour trying to do economic prudence or if they're talking about nationalisation, there's this sort of cultural hinterland that makes it hard for them. Yeah, I mean, I think there there is something to that, Raph, but there, I, I, would, I would argue that it's probably a bit of an overstatement. I mean, I, I think actually more difficult, especially in the middle of a leadership race for a party, is not so much uh, the instinctive scepticism of the voting public, but it's actually the tension between your kind of core votes and your membership who often have views of, that are not wholly representative of the voting public and the kind of uh, the voters that you want to reach into uh, in the kind of common ground of, of British politics who are naturally stretching that core vote and stretching their values and priorities. Um, so you're having to speak to two different audiences. And I think that's really what we're seeing with both public ownership and actually with taxes uh, and kind of fiscal questions on the NHS with the Conservative Party today. Um, and I think ultimately the party that can successfully stretch their core vote the most is the one that's going to win the general election. And that's what the Conservative Party did really well in 2019, right? Like they stretched their core vote really effectively. And, and does that mean that is just that's a bigger problem for Labour because one feels intuitively that they're sort of, for want of a better term, the sort of metropolitan, urban, younger, university educated activist base is quite stretched out from some of those voters, Brexit voting, leavers, older voters in small towns that feel left behind. That's a that's a stretchier stretch that they've got to do. I, I, I don't agree with that. Actually, I don't think it is a bigger problem. I, I agree with Will that that is something that the Conservatives very successfully did in 2019. But the problem is, is they haven't delivered for any of those new voters and they won't have delivered by the time of the next general election. The ec economic situation is really bad, partly because of this government, partly because of factors outside of its control. But it hasn't done the stuff I think that it said it would. I think people won't have started to see an improvement improvement in their living conditions and you know if you look at the NHS people can't get a GP appointment they can't get a dentist appointment some people having to pull out their own teeth there will be accountability for that and it will come at the next election now whether whether it's enough um, for Labour to sort of monopolise on I don't know but this stuff is going to hurt and it's going to hurt the Conservatives because they've promised something and they haven't delivered. If you're listening to this podcast and thinking of removing your own teeth please don't do that. Um, <laughs> Will, give us, a, give us a closing thought on that. So just one thing I want to say is it is empirically true that the centre of the Labour Party is significantly further away from the centre of the British electorate. Uh, the Labour Party, we describe the Labour Party as kind of doing the splits between its kind of newer, radical, more progressive voters and its older working class voters. Uh, and that is a very difficult group of uh, voters to bring together, whereas the Conservative Party is actually quite homogenous and it's quite close to the centre ground of British politics now. But that's the big question in this race, whether or not these candidates understand the electorate as it is now rather than the electorate as it was in the 1980s and, will and willing to accept that ideologically or, it, or whether or not they want to hark back to a past, potentially forfeit that majority at the next election. Right. Final question. Rapid fire round. One, one word answer. Yes or no. 
Is it coming home on Sunday? Yes. yes. I've got tickets okay. for the final. <laughs> <laughs> you lucky pig. Thank you, guests, uh, Sonia, Soda, Will Tanner, for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Speaking of whether it is or isn't coming home, and of course it is, uh, I want to highlight another podcast, which is The Guardian's Women's Football Weekly. England are on in the final of the Women's Euros, in case you didn't get that subtle Three Lions reference from a second ago. Uh, that's this Sunday at Wembley. And to celebrate our new series, the Guardians Women's Football Weekly will be doing a bonus finals preview episode on Friday. Make sure to search, subscribe and listen to the Guardians Women's Football Weekly wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby uh, and Anoa Abeka Mensa. Music was by Axel Cucutier. Uh, the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. John will be back next Thursday. This is The Guardian. Mm-hmm.